Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers. We're going to try again after a technical glitch um, because we have a wonderful show today. And I'll repeat, on this program, we focus each week on new developments in medicine, many of which are based on new technologies, new techniques, and medications. What is often overlooked is the spiritual aspect of health care. Since human beings first walked the earth and long after today's technologies will have become obsolete, our inner and spiritual beliefs have guided so much of what we feel and how we cope with both joyful and difficult life situations. My guests today have kept spirituality as a primary focus of their work, and I am so glad and honored to have them with us today. Dr. Trace Haythorne is the Executive Director and CEO of the Association of Clinical uh, pastoral education. Dr. Christina Puchowski, whom I have known for many years, uh, is a graduate, uh, medical graduate of George Washington University Medical School. She remained, has remained at GW throughout her career and is now a professor of medicine and health, health science at GW Medical School and Medical Center. She's also the co-director of the GW Supportive and Palliative Outpatient Clinics and the executive director of George Washington University's Institute for Spirituality and Health. Welcome to you both, and thank you for staying with us. Uh, Dr. Haythorn, uh, excuse me, Dr. Pachowski, if I could start with you. Um, I recall as when we were medical students together just over 30 years ago, uh, that even uh, then, in first and second year of medical school, you were interested in exploring the spirituality of medicine. You often would host informal brown bag luncheons for fellow students who were interested to talk about these issues. Now, granted, most of the students at that point were more interested in learning the uh, Krebs cycle in biochemistry or memorizing the bones of the hand for anatomy. But there was a small handful of people interested, in, and you helped bring those people together. Tell us about how your interest started and how you've kept this interest throughout the years. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for having us on the show. This is great that you are bringing this topic um, topic out uh, today. Um, well, going back to GW when we were students, um, if you remember Jackie Glover's ethics class, um, that's really where the elective on spirituality and health was born. But my own interest it's always been a, a very important part of my life, uh, you know, and, and recognizing, at least in my own life, the importance of spirituality broadly defined, as well as, in my case, also religion, how that played a, a, a key role in my life and that of my parents in um, in how we coped with life or how we understood life, a very, very important part of, part, part of life. Um, 
prior to being in medical school, I worked at NIH. I was in a graduate program, actually, in biochemistry. So I'm glad we teach the Krebs cycle. It's very important. And uh, um, and uh, I did, at that time, um, start visiting patients in the clinical center at NIH and was uh, a lot of those patients were had severe rheumatologic um issues and diseases, and I was struck in all of those cases how people who were um, considered very advanced in their illness, that's why they came to NIH for experimental treatment, many had incredible sense of meaning and purpose in their life that transcended whatever their very obvious disabilities were, and chronic pain. Uh, in a, in artists who, I remember this one artist who her hands were so deformed and swollen, she couldn't really uh, do her art, and yet she managed another way to, to do that. And I um, remember thinking how important it is at that time that we're not just focusing on the physical aspects, but also on the person's story and what matters most to them, uh, including the spiritual aspect of care. So then a couple of years later, when I was uh, in medical school at GW and in that ethics class, I had read an article about spirituality and uh, health, more about complementary and alternative medicine, actually, and how the majority of people in the U.S. were willing to pay lots of money for complementary and alternative practitioners, but were arguing about that $10 copay to their regular physician. And I, I started thinking, I wonder why that is, and I talked to some of our colleagues Dr. Wisniewski, I don't know if you remember him, but he went, if you rotated to Holy Cross, he, he was intending, yeah. And I talked to him about what, what he did, and it was a whole person care approach um, that, that people really valued. And so lots of these things brought uh, an interest to me, not so much just knowing spirituality is important, but the connection to spirituality and health and trying to explore that more. And so wrote a paper for that ethics course on developing an elective and um, was surprised how many faculty were calling me to be part of the group that developed that elective. I think so it's, you- if I may, I think it's important at the outset, too, to state that spirituality in general is not necessarily tied into any specific re- religious belief, that uh, no matter what beliefs, individual beliefs people may have in terms of their religion, or if they are, have no particular religious beliefs, that spirituality still is important. Right, and so that is what was how we defined it for that elective. That it's it's broad. It's how people understand meaning and purpose. And so to fast forward from that elective, as we worked with the Association of American Medical Colleges, and actually developed uh, recommendations and guidelines for how to integrate this in the curriculum, and that included that broad definition that spirituality is understood how uh, how people find meaning and purpose in their life, how they connect to the transcendent or sacred, however they understand that. And and it can be very, very broad. Uh, and there's many, many aspects of, of spirituality that can be at play in a person's life in one's clinical environment. So that started that work. And we eventually started the, founded the Institute, the GW Institute on Spirituality and Health called GWISH. It was formally um, chartered by the university in 2001. And we just celebrated 20 years. So we've been doing this a long time with many, many colleagues and have since worked on guidelines, et cetera, that reinforce that broad definition. But also what's so, so key, and it wasn't there at the beginning when I did the elective, was the recognition of how to work with chaplains. And so back then, GW didn't have a chaplaincy program 
um, in a hospital. And so we, we weren't privileged to be able to work with chaplains, but I became acutely aware over the years of doing this work of the importance of working with chaplains. So the model that we developed for clinical care is a generalist specialist model where, Louis, you and I would be the, you know, we'd be the generalist. We would do a spiritual history. We developed a FICA tool for that, doing spiritual history, identifying distress as well as spiritual resources of strength, listening to that patient's story, um, seeing how it might relate to how that person is coping either with their wellness or what else is going on. And a specialist would be the board-certified chaplain uh, who would then work more closely with people, especially those that we have identified as having spiritual distress. And we're going to talk and, to Dr. Haythorne in, in just a couple of minutes. But let me ask you, over the years, did you get much pushback uh, at, at George Washington? And, and uh, have your colleagues around the country gotten much pushback from from other medical personnel who don't see this necessarily as being an important part of the uh treatment plan? Absolutely. Um, You know, it it was seen, and that's why I said at the beginning that I also, you know, think we should be learning about the Krebs cycle. You know, care, uh, I think people think sometimes, or they did think at that time, that this was a soft area that was, that really we need to just focus on the physical care. That's what is our role as physicians. And certainly over time with patient-centered models and other you know, the field of palliative care exploding in the early part of this century, recognizing, again, that the whole person aspect of care is so critical, there's been less pushback. But I'll tell you back then, the pushback, I remember I remember giving a, a grand rounds on it, and I was a resident at that time, and, and one, of the, one of the physicians in the audience said, this is total nonsense to be doing this. You know, we need to be training technically skilled physicians. And there was a lot of um, of concern back then about the integration of this. A good percentage of that had to do with religion. But if spirituality was only seen as religion, that that was not appropriate to integrate into into the medical environment. And certainly since then, people have recognized, and now, especially even now, as we're talking about providing care to very diverse people and respecting what's important to them. For a lot of people, religion is important to them, and we need to be able to listen to that story and honor their beliefs and understanding. Same with spirituality broadly defined. We talk about, you know, what are the coping skills? How, what are the resources of strength? How do people find um, an ability to cope with the difficult things going on? Again, spirituality and religion can be very important. Culture is really important. So, you know, looking at religion as part of cultural beliefs and values is important. But if we're going to provide respectful care and understand what is really important to our diverse patient population, we need to ask about all aspects of their life, especially the spiritual aspect. Parallel with the development of this focus on spirituality uh, that you've been a pioneer uh, has been a very broad-based focus on palliative care, which now is found in almost every hospital uh, in the country. And you're also officially involved with that as the uh, uh, co-director, I believe, of the Palliative Outpatient Center. Tell us about palliative care and how that field has developed. So um, Cecily Saunders uh, in England in the 1980s uh, really uh, the founder of the field of hospice and then later palliative care. So just in brief, it is a field that focuses on the care of people with serious and or chronic illness. 
with hospice being typically the last, say, six months or a year of a person's life, whereas palliative care can be integrated from the time of diagnosis through, say, recovery or cure through recurrence. It's a much longer phase of treatment. We have in the field um, uh, brought, again, broadened this to, a spe- so I'm also a specialist palliative care physician, and, and hence my role in that clinic. But it's also thought that just like the generalist specialist model in spiritual care, there's a generalist specialist model for palliative care, and that is that every clinician should understand the basic principles of palliative care. And I have often said this, though, uh, you know, certainly it's not exactly the same, but that this is really just a good model of care in general. This is what was practiced, you know, by the family doctors, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, where it's really, again, the biopsychosocial spiritual model of care. The whole person matters. And so palliative care specialists will address the physical, emotional, the social, and spiritual, and help to integrate all of that in their assessment of the patient and their recommendation to, say, the oncologist, the surgeon, et cetera. So the generalist palliative care, these are principles that all, all clinicians should have in approaching um, patients. And then a key part of that has to do with goals of care or advanced directives. And um, everybody should be thinking about what they might want uh, in terms of their life, particularly if they have serious illness. Yeah, let's, you, you let's, know, uh, let's focus on that's a very good point. Advanced directives. I think everybody has heard of these. And what are they and why is why is the advanced directive important? Yeah, so the the reason that it's so important is to ensure that people have their wishes respected um, when they are very seriously ill and at crisis points when questions around resuscitation and different types of treatment modalities are addressed. And so I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a maybe slightly different opinion because oftentimes what we say right now about what we would want might change as we are facing our own death and dying. And it's not surprising when a lot of people will change their mind. But it's, it's really to begin thinking about, especially if you have a serious or chronic illness, down the line, what would be my wishes? If I were really seriously ill, if I had say, a major heart attack, and I would need to be on a breathing machine, a ventilator. Um, is that something I would want at the end of my life? But it also, you know, goes and and the risks, of course, are described depending on what the situation is. So people should have these discussions with their physicians and care providers early on, not just kind of at the last minute. Uh, and, and why spirituality is such a big part of that, because the idea behind goals of care is not just signing an advanced directive, which is a legal form, but it's having that discussion of what I value in my life. So if I were, say, to have advanced cancer um, and, you know, I'm still looking at chemotherapy and hopefully it's, it's, it's um, not going to be cured or whatever, but, you know, I, I need to be thinking about what matters most to me? What do I want to spend my energy on? And those are the kinds of conversations that I have in other palliative care physicians and all clinicians actually should have. You know, if t- tell me a little bit about your priorities. What matters most? How can we help you continue to live a meaningful life? That also has to do with treatment, not just end-of-life care. I've had many patients who have delayed uh, starting chemotherapy because they really wanted to do that important trip 
they really wanted to see a loved one who couldn't come to travel to them, so they did. And so I would work with the oncologist to say, is there a way to do this so that we can accommodate that goal, that wish of patients? So uh, that's really what these kinds of conversations have to cover. And spirituality is a key part of that because we're talking about what 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 gives meaning to that person, and and what what are their their wishes in terms of how they want to be treated, how they want to spend what if if they can fast forward to their end of life, what would that look like for them? Would they want to be at home and die at home? Would they want to have everything done? With you know, and, and again, these cha- wishes can change, but it's so important that we all have those conversations early on. And speaking of conversations, we would certainly like to hear from our listeners if you have any thoughts today or, or comments or have had experience uh, personal or with loved ones uh, going through these situations. We're at 802-244-1777, and the phones are open. You know, you make an interesting point a few moments ago that uh, uh, decades ago, before we had some of the more um, advanced technologies and treatments and sort of life-prolonging treatments that we have now, uh, family practice uh, providers, often yeah. doctors back then, had more, t- perhaps more time and less uh, curative treatments to offer so that they felt more comfortable in talking about death and dying and, and what they could do and what they couldn't do. And I think perhaps patients were more accepting at times of that. Um, have we gotten to the point where we think that medicine is somehow infallible? You know, I don't, I don't know. I want to go back a little bit, though, and I know we just focused on, you know, spirituality being developed in the context of palliative care because that's where the need was and that, that, that is a field that requires spiritual care including specialist spiritual care with chaplains as a part of care. But but really, we're recognizing more and more with the research that it's about spiritual health in general. It's also about wellness. So I have many patients who are young, active, uh, you know, lots of older patients who are, are, are active and healthy, and, and spirituality is still a source of strength for them where it helps them get through things like the past year and a half with the pandemic or difficulties, you know, the spouse dies or is ill or something. It, it helps give them perspective. And so I, I do think, you know, yes, in the, in the old days, perhaps physicians had more time and to, to get into those conversations. But one of so the models that, that do you wish along with you know, Trace Haythorn, who's our colleague, and Betty Farrell and others that we've worked with, we've developed models where that, that this is actually something that can be done in those 15-minute visits, you know, 30-minute visits. It's, it's something that can be addressed uh, at the beginning of your first new patient visit with someone so you get to know them. And, and then, you know, you follow up uh, just like you do with anything else. So if you've identified spiritual distress, you act on it, you're present to the patient, you try to understand it, you work with a chaplain like Trace, and you, you know, work with a chaplain and, um, and, and follow up at the next visit. So how was your visit with the chaplain? Did it help? Are you, where are you right now with this? Just like you would with blood pressure. And with more and more data showing that spiritual issues and other types of issues can actually impact physical health, spiritual health should just be you know, part of ACO models and part of, you know, any patient-centered care model should be the biopsychosocial spiritual model. So we've pushed it way out of, of palliative care. Yes, the, the guidelines are there, but we've, we've learned lessons because that's where it was required. But we've learned lessons that it's actually really important. So you mentioned family medicine. 
family medicine physicians are very involved in this field and very much integrating um, that into their care. And we've seen over the last, you know, you said almost 30 years ago we started the elective, there's such an interest in this worldwide, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And currently, Reverend Haythorn and I, are, are with, along with Dr. Betty Farrell, are working on how to advance what we call advancing interprofessional spiritual care, which is, again, the generalist. We have mentioned Dr. Haythorn several times in the last few minutes, so I'm going to bring him in at this point. Uh, Dr. Haythorn, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background and and how you came to do the kind of work you're doing now. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, my, My entree to this work actually began when I was a teenager and experienced the death of a friend. Um, he died of cancer, and like a lot of teenagers, I started asking really uncomfortable questions, and mostly what I got back from parents and clergy and friends were the kind of pithy answers that I'm sure most of your listeners know right off the cuff. They're things that we hear and people offer thinking they're going to be comforting, but often it's more about comforting the person who's answering the question than it is the person who's really suffering. And so I began a journey that led me to become a pediatric hospice volunteer first and then um, did most of my training in chaplaincy in a pediatric setting, uh, which I was very intentional about, one, because of my own personal questions, but also because I just think pediatrics brings the questions to a point that you simply can't ignore them. Um, One of my favorite theologians talks about there are places we go where our hearts are broken deep and wide enough to be able to grow into what they need to be next. And I think, especially within a pediatric intensive care setting or oncology, um, we've learned a great deal from being with those children and the wisdom that they bring and the kind of uh, unfiltered spirituality that they offer that often those of us who are grown up have learned to package and rethink. Listeners might uh, might remember uh, that uh, it was three weeks ago we had on uh, uh, two pediatric oncologists from St. Jude's, and that was uh, mm-hmm. they talked a bit about this. But, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. in, in terms of uh, uh, I was, what your work involves, yeah, I was going to say the work of clinical pastoral education is teaching well, mostly clergy, but a number of lay folks as well participate in this work, and the, the practice invites people to really go deeply into their own system of belief, not so they can use those to teach other people when they're in their most vulnerable, but instead so that they can be aware of what the spirituality is of the person they're serving. So if I were to come to you, it wouldn't matter if you were Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Jain, whatever your tradition might be, I would come to you, and instead of bringing my meaning frame to you, I would help you access the spiritual resources that are already within you, that are already present. Um, That's a fundamental conviction that we bring. Um, We even work with folks who are humanist chaplains, who for them it's less about the language of spirit and more about meaning and purpose. Um, You've heard Christina use that a couple of times as well. So how do we help people draw upon those inherent resources the kind of transcendent resources that are within us to be able to engage um, some of the most difficult moments that any of us will ever face in our lives. Um, And we're teaching folks to do that in 450 places around the country right now and growing all the time because, as you mentioned, the advances in technology in some ways have only complicated 
what role the spirit plays in addressing these questions. We're going to have to take a break in about uh, 20 seconds, but uh, I, I want to come back and continue to talk about uh, spirituality and medicine with our uh, executive director of the uh, chaplains and clinical pastoral education and, and with Dr. Christina Puchowski at George Washington University. Uh, our, we're at 802-244-1777. Back in a moment. Dr. Lewis Myers back with the second half of our hour today looking at spirituality in healthcare and medicine with Dr. Trace Haythorn and Dr. Christina Puchowski. Dr. Haythorn, just a personal reminiscence. Before I went to medical school, I had, uh, was in a master's degree in social work program at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> Even though it was that Catholic, it was essentially a secular program. But we had several uh, Jesuit trained priests in the class who were training to become pastoral counselors. And I remember vividly that they were some of the most impressive people in the class because perhaps because of their Jesuit training, they were able to take big thoughts, philosophical thoughts, and sort of articulate them in very clear ways. Um, and also, obviously, they felt more comfortable in talking about spirituality based on their, their own training and background. Uh, what is your experience when when act, when priests and other ministers come into the field of medicine? Um, what draws them into that? I think for many of them, there is a, a privilege of being at a bedside with someone who is asking life's hardest questions and asking them of whatever their primary belief is rooted in. It may be God. It may be um some larger sense of, of nature. Why is this happening to me? How is this happening to me? And I think for many, they, they have experienced in one way or another something that's led them to want to be closer to those questions and to hold them with others. Uh, I'm thinking uh, particularly of a colleague who once said, physicians are mostly trained when asked the question why to give a clinical answer of the biological processes where chaplains are trained to sit with those questions and look at that larger biopsychosocial model, which is what we're trying to do through the ISPEC program at GWISH of inviting clinicians into a dialogue in that space so that the whys are not just about bodily functions, but it is about the larger world of, of how we live, who we are, this crazy mixed-up thing we call humanity. One of the perhaps the nation's most prominent physicians uh, is Dr. Francis Collins. Uh, he has been the director of the NIH for, gosh, 12 13 to 15 years. Uh, he will be stepping down shortly, but he is a remarkable man because he has such tremendous training in the biological sciences. He was a geneticist from Michigan, um, and he has been a great director of NIH. But he's also been very open about his sharing some of his religious beliefs and why his religious beliefs are important to him. Um, what, what is your, have you ever spoken with him or as an example, what kind of example do you think he sets? I think he is a beautiful model of why um, spirituality and medicine or even more broadly science not in competition with each other. They're just answering different questions and sometimes answering the same questions but in different ways. 
but it's really about rounding out the fullness of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a part of the larger natural world. Dr. Collins just brilliantly dances between those two places and holds his passions in the world of medicine with his passions for his own personal faith. Um, I, I wish we had more public figures like that, and I think that's part of what Christina's been leading, what Dr. Podolsky's been leading um, through her work at GWISH, that we're inviting more clinicians to speak up in that way and to recognize that this is this is not a place that you need to be shy around. And in fact, it winds up being an incredible resource and may make you far more trustworthy to your patients when you're able to talk through these things with them. And yet we live, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, we live in an era right now what uh, of uh, perhaps cultural correctness uh, when people are very careful about what they say, uh, trying not to offend any particular group, trying not to perhaps not to uh, uh, divulge their own personal feelings or beliefs. Do you think that that is going to get in the way of some of the work you and Dr. Pachowski are doing? And I can open that up to both of you. I, I think it I think it already does, honestly. I think there are folks that are afraid to say anything about where they are personally for fears that that's going to somehow make them seen as lesser when, in fact, I think when people can speak from those places with integrity um, and not speaking from those places to try to convince someone of, of their own belief, but instead just to say, this is my experience and this is how I've seen this, uh, I think there's an opportunity there for human connection at one of the deepest levels possible. Um, but if you're not comfortable going there yourself, you're going to have a very difficult time going there with another. Dr. Kowalski, what would you say? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It is, um, you know, you can say the same thing about about a lot of aspects of clinical care. If we are, if say the clinicians have had difficulties in their lives and have not really been able to face it or deal with it, then when they see that a patient starts bringing up deep suffering, they, they kind of run from it because they ran from it in their own life in a way. And so I think, and we teach this at GW, um, uh, you know, Dr. Blatt, you probably remember him. Yes, I do. He really does incredible work on communication and on our own reflection. And he and I actually developed a course called Jewish Templeton Reflection Round. It was funded by the Templeton Foundation, where we address this very issue that you're just talking about right now, which is we need some self-awareness in our own professional development about our spirituality, about who we are as people, not just necessarily spirituality and faith, but what are, what are our own experiences? What are our hurts? What are those places where we've been hurt? Not that people have to reveal that in the small group, but just to reflect on how have we, um, you know, what, what has happened in our life and how have we handled that so that we can better be present. We talk about, teach the, the, um, the concept of compassionate presence, being present to another person's suffering and being able to hold that space because it's tough to listen to suffering. It's really hard. One of the, uh, if I may, one of the, you know. One of the ways this has gotten involved politically is when um, practitioners, medical practitioners, or perhaps others, uh, get in, uh, find themselves in situations clinically where they don't feel comfortable. And perhaps the most prominent is uh, those uh, physicians who might oppose abortion and uh, refuse to do the procedure, refuse to do counseling regarding the procedure. 
um, that's one area where it's gotten politically very fraught. Uh, Dr. Haythorn, how would you how would you counsel a physician who's in that situation, who is torn between his medical duties and his religious beliefs? You know, I think every physician needs to know where they stand on particularly those very intense issues within our larger sociocultural world and political world today um, and recognize who their colleagues are, who they can partner with, to be able to say in a particular moment, if they've got deep convictions that say, I just can't um, participate in this, but let me refer you to a colleague. Um, I think being able to have that network of people that was really to work with so that the patient is able to receive the care they, they may need and they may desire um, and you're able to re- maintain your own professional integrity and authenticity in those moments. Well, that's a very helpful perspective. Dr. Bracheski, let me ask you this. Uh, before we, uh, this week, before we came on the air, I know that your institution, George Washington, is, I believe, changing their electronic medical records and anyone who works in medicine today recognizes that that is a stressful time when an e- entire EMR system uh, changes. We've talked a little bit about EMRs on different programs. We may have to have a whole program devoted to it. But um, in general, electronic medical records, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, studies have shown that primary care providers now spend up to 50% of their time looking at their computer screens rather than their patients. How is this? Are they helping, hurting, or a mixture in terms of the work that you're doing with palliative care and spiritual counseling? So not just palliative care and spiritual counseling, but general care. General care. Yeah, so we're just, we're just implementing it, and it, it is really a steep learning curve. So, But we had an electronic health record before, and I made it work uh, so that I could still be present. I think it gets down, and I was talking about this previously with the Reflection Rounds program that we do, a key piece, we talked about patient spirituality, but but our own spirituality as clinicians and what that means for us in terms of our call to serve. Most most people go into medicine, nursing, social work, chaplaincy, et cetera, because of a call, a reason, something that really drew them to that. And that is what, uh, what grounds us. And there have been studies, there's been much written on this, that part of the burnout especially in physicians and nurses, is when we cease to work from that sense of call, from sense of meaning. And if we allow the electronic health record to get in the way of that, I think that's where it becomes burdensome. So the challenge is how do we, how do we make it so that we can use that record in a way that's effective and efficient for the purposes of documentation, which is important, but not interfere with the, with the patient. And I will tell you, and so it was week two of my learning the new electronic health system, and, and all of us were stressed to the max, the entire staff, physicians, nurses, everybody. And I go in, and this lovely patient, the older patient I take care of, you know, I sit down, I go, can, can you just give me two minutes? I have to figure out again how to get on here and do it. And she was laughing. But I, you know, I think it was probably taking a little more time, and she says, can you just turn away from the screen for just a minute? And I just was like, whoa, this. Absolutely. And I'll figure this out later. You know, good. And, good. And, good for the um, patient for spe- I, speaking that truth. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I thought that was an, a very important thing. And so we need to do that. I think we as we should never allow electronics to interfere or anything to interfere with our practice with our patients. 
So for me, get going into that room, whether it's virtually or in person, is sacred space. And the most important person there is the patient and in our relationship. So these other things are necessary. And I'm not saying to ignore them, but notes can be completed later. Things can be added later. I literally so like that concept of sacred space, and that is something that <clears throat> all of us who work with people could could certainly bear in mind. Let me ask each of you about a specific space. situation. Well, let me, let me, okay, go let me ahead. One more thing, which is that we're really happy that Epic will be integrating the Psycho Spiritual History tool into its electronic health record. So at least there'll be a, a resource that physicians and nurses uh, will be able to use in their uh, clinical setting, and chaplains can also look at that and encourage the the clinicians to right. fill that out. Well, I, I'm uh, glad to hear that. I'm not going to go so far as to say that Epic has a soul, but uh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about a specific situation, each of you, how you would approach a specific situation. Jehovah's Witness, very observant Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, generally believe that accepting blood transfusions is goes against their faith. Um, all, I'm sure Dr. Pachowski and I have both seen patients, Jehovah's Witness patients who came in and who were uh, critically ill with bleeding issues or severe anemia. Um, how would you approach someone like that uh, who has those beliefs? And you know that the, the you know, not accepting blood transfusion may indeed lead to, to their death. So is that coming? <laughs> um, I actually have a story of that uh, where we met with a family um Actually, one with a Jehovah's Witness and another with a Christian scientist. And through um, first starting with some careful trust building, because there was already some deep suspicion of the uh, medical team, we worked with um, their understanding of what blood was and where their faith informed the blood products. And we actually were able to arrange for a direct transfusion from um, a son to his mother. Um similar story with a person with uh, who is a Christian scientist um, because the mother understood the blood as being from her to begin with. So um, it did not feel like it was violating um, their belief that uh, the blood within you is, is divinely given and um, because she then believed that the blood within her son was divinely given from her, through her. Um, that was a, a, a fortunate way of being able to address a really critical need, and um, she did well. Um, the son was agreeable, and fortunately was the right blood type, too, not the type of the father. So we were able to really enter into their worldview. That was the key piece, was getting into how they understood this and work with them to look at ways that we might be able to address the critical health need. That, speaking of, and that's a, such an important Point getting into their worldview. I think that uh, those two statements, the sacred space and getting into their worldview, are two highlights of what I've heard today. Dr. Bachowski, you work at George Washington University, which is a, a truly an international city. Washington D.C. is an international city. You have uh, people from different cultures from all around the world. There are cultures in Africa and other uh, parts of the world where someone who a patient who is dying. Uh, it is believed that fam- uh, they should not uh, be told or it might actually be harmful for them to be told about their condition and that they're likely to die. Uh, family members are to be told, but family members either tell the patient themselves or, or withhold that. 
Um, that cuts against most of what we're taught in medical schools today, that, that op- upfront honesty about someone's condition is important. How do you deal with a situation like that if you go in and the family members don't want you to tell the patient? Dr. Pachowski. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Before I answer that question, I I want to make one comment because I also had a patient as a resident, many patients who were Jehovah's Witnesses. And in the case of the patient um, in a hospital when I was a resident, actually I was a medical student, um, there was a lot of concern between uh, really concerned that this person would not um, accept the transfusion. The family was mixed. The mother of the patient was Jehovah's Witness. One of the children were, but others were of different faiths. And there's a lot, a lot in that that I won't go into because it'll take a long time. But the bottom line was this, that we honored her wishes because that's where she stood and she was not capable of making a decision. The family had to. And she fortunately did reasonably well and I was there to extubate her. And as soon as she could clear her throat and speak, she said, did I get a blood transfusion? And I said, no. And she says, thank you so much because that would have I would have never been able to have uh, eternal life. And, you know, it so profoundly struck me as a student, not just about Jehovah's Witnesses, but the importance of honoring people's beliefs and recognizing that that's important in care. And so with regard to your question about family members not being told, again, I... Or the patient not being told. told. You're being told by the family members. Yeah. That's a very... Um, you know, we do see patients from other countries here... Uh, as well, who have similar values and beliefs. And it's important to work with families. I, I generally work with families and, of course, honor that. Um, I, I do tell them it's important that we, uh, that the patient, uh, under, you know, understand, and this is, you know, how we function in this culture, but, um, you know, if, if that's what's important, we're there to try to work as best as possible and not violate that, that understanding. Sometimes family members will, um, at some point, change the mind. Sometimes not, but I, I think I think it's important to honor that. It's also um, what I've learned in those few circumstances that I had here with family members from other countries is that uh, it's also part of their relationship. And both members, the patient and the family, have you know been in that relationship for years. And who are we to sort of violate that? So it's it's tricky because we want to, you know, a lot of this, especially around end-of-life care, we have, we, I'm talking about the big medical system, have certain ideas of what's the right way to go. But honestly, I, I think even when we convey um, diagnoses to people, you know, you're going to, you have a 40% chance of this, you have a 20% chance of this, you know, that's based, one of my patients said, you know, I'm not, I'm not a you know, someone on a curve. You don't know where I am. I could be 100%. I could be 80. You know, everybody's individual. So I think we need some humility when we start conveying statistics or when we start thinking that our way is exactly right, that we have to, the patient has to be informed because that's what we do here. I think we have to practice a little humility and tread gently on those conversations and just get to know the family members and the patients. It's, it's a journey. You know, we're privileged to walk on that journey. And they may change along the way. We may change along the way, but that's what it is. It's not black or white. It it's, uh, can be messy at times, but it's really a privilege to do this Well, I think work. humility is, uh, again, an, an operative word there, and I'm glad you used that word. Let's um, 
in the moments, few minutes that we have left, let's talk about COVID. Obviously, for the past 18 months, it's been a big part of everyone's world. Um, you mentioned advanced directives earlier. I had read a, something not long ago that young, healthy people are have been filling out their advanced directives, making out their wills because they feel a bit less immortal and realize that even for them, death could come uh, rather quickly and unexpectedly. So in in both of your perspectives, how has COVID changed the conversation and, and people's willingness to open up to various spiritual discussions? I was just going to say, it, it's meant that our folks have had to learn how to do this through screens. So through iPads and cell phones and uh, a variety of tools that before were seen as barriers to really being present with another, now learning how to use these digital tools to actually still be able to attend to people when they couldn't go into a room or when a family member couldn't be there how they could be gowned up and serve as a mediator um, and to serve really as a kind of presence mid-spouse, if you will. they kind of holding between the family and the patient. The other important part of that has also been shifting for care of the clinical team. We've talked about before the pandemic, uh, about 80% of the care was for families and patients. And since the pandemic, it feels like the equation has flipped where almost 80% of the care has been for the staff just because it's been so difficult for these folks to show up day after day. And with the politicization of the pandemic, it's just added a whole other dimension. So our, our chaplains have really worked hard to figure out how first to pivot with the tools and the practice and then to pivot related to who is the centerpiece of their care. Dr. Bichaska, I know George Washington was hit hard by COVID. Has that been your experience? Well, yes, but I I think, you know, your question was how has COVID raised awareness on these issues that we've been talking about? I, I think where it's been, where it's raised the awareness is that, especially last year and also this year, having COVID or ha- having a loved one have COVID or taking care of patients with COVID just raises phenomenal existential and spiritual issues. Like, if I get it, will I die? Um, or watching family members who can't be next to loved ones and seeing their grief as their loved ones are dying. It's raised a real awareness of what spiritual issues and particularly spiritual distress is. I mean, it's the first time that at GW Hospital people were saying, boy, we need those chaplains. We, the clinicians, need those chaplains too. So it's, it's raised awareness of spiritual distress and existential distress and the need for spiritual care for patients. But also it's raised the awareness of the need of spiritual care for clinicians. And, and one of the roles of board certified chaplains is that they provide support to staff. So, so I've seen and heard many stories of staff not only being present for patients, but also for the staff. So in, in a way, it's, it, you know, we're all, uh, we're, and, and these are questions, the questions that people ask who get COVID are similar to the questions that people who have serious illness ask. Right. It's just that now all of us as a, as a world are experiencing this, so it's just a, a, a greater, I think, shared understanding. Well, in many situations... And spiritual distress is, such, is a human right. In many situations, it's really akin to being in a battle battlefield. And exactly. as we know, in, in wartime, battlefield chaplains are among the most valued people in the field. And... Uh, 
For, and in that light, we're, as we close, I want to thank Dr. Trace Haythorn, Executive Director and CEO of the Association of Clinical Pastoral Education for the work you're doing. Dr. Christina Pachalski, who is doing so much over the years at George Washington University and nationally in uh, promoting the role of spirituality in medicine. Thank you both. And uh, we hope to uh, perhaps hear from you again in the future and stay well, both of you. And the same to all my listeners. I will be away next weekend. It's Thanksgiving, but we'll be back in two weeks when our uh, discussion will be on hearing loss. How can we prevent hearing loss and how do we treat it when it occurs? So please join us then. Until then, please be kind to yourselves, be kind to others, and I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to be on your on your show. Thank you. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.